Coming up on the FSR Sarkfighter podcast, it is summer of 2023. A heat wave is punishing much of the country, and I'm on assignment on the U.S.-Mexican border in Texas. We've got a developing situation right here. This may have been the biggest test of my situation with sarcoidosis as I was in a punishing and emotionally charged environment for several days. Uh, so what happened was that uh, the Mexican Border Patrol, their Border Patrol came down and they were trying to catch them too. So they all scattered. Now the group has broken up into several smaller groups and each small group is trying to cross the river through their own way. Coming up, I'll share my experience as I was embedded with the National Guard watching desperate people trying to come across the Rio Grande River into the United States. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 93 of the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. This episode is brought to you by Atire Pharmaceuticals. On the heels of their successful Phase 2 clinical trial, Atire Pharma has now launched a Phase 3 clinical trial with pulmonary sarcoidosis. The study tests whether their drug, Efsofitamod, will allow people to reduce the dose of steroids that they are taking to treat their disease while maintaining symptom control and preserving lung function. In other words, replacing prednisone. Listen to episode 65 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast with Atire Pharma's president and CEO, Dr. Sanjay Shukla. And to learn more, you can go to a link in the show notes. And thanks again to Atire Pharmaceuticals for everything the company is doing to try and find really the first drug that's been created and now tested is on the way to being tested and very close to the end of the of the line in terms of the clinical trials the very first drug to treat specifically sarcoidosis so i hope you will uh, we will click on that link and you will learn more about what's going on with atire and efsofitamod i got to tell you this podcast is going to be a little bit different i'll be sharing with you some of my thoughts as I have just returned uh, three and a half days ago from watching migrants attempt to enter the United States at a place called Eagle Pass, Texas. Now, this will be about those migrants, kind of, but also my experience. And I'm going to share it in the context of what I think is the most severe or stringent test of my body since I have gone into, I can't say remission because I'm still taking medication, but control of sarcoidosis because I'm essentially symptom-free, but I do take three drugs essentially to, to keep my sarcoidosis under control. Now, uh, I have to tell you uh, why I feel like this was a test. Um, before I get into kind of the, the more interesting part of the podcast, which I, I, sarcoidosis or not, I, I hope you're going to find fascinating because it, it really was a firsthand experience. And it, it's, it's some of the most uh, interesting and difficult reporting I've ever done in my life. And uh, I've, I've been in the business uh, for at least four decades now. Uh, since I started in radio way back in 1980, to give you an idea. But um, since I've had sarcoidosis, 
And if you haven't listened to my story that I detailed back way back in episode one when I was just getting the podcast started, I have neurosarcoidosis and I have permanent damage in my spinal cord because of it uh, at right basically in my neck. So everything south of my uh, neck, if you will, has um, it has limited ability compared to my days of playing point guard uh, at the YMCA and, and, uh, and in high school and, and just really enjoying playing basketball and being active and sort of quick and mobile. But now uh, I, I have lost a lot of feeling in my, my lower body because of this. So as a result, tight spaces really mess me up. Like if I've got to move my foot and there's something blocking it, I can't feel what's, what's blocking it. And so I kind of have to look down. I have, you know, so so if I'm in a tight space, um, I'm very awkward, and I and, I, and it's embarrassing to me uh, because if I walk up to you, you have no idea what's going on. And and so I'm I'm going to be I know I'm going to be riding in the back of a vehicle with lots of equipment and stuff, and it's and it's going to be rough. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. So tight spaces are a problem. Um, heat is a problem. I just don't deal with heat very well and so now I've been assigned to go to Texas where the week before we got there the temperature was 107 and so I'm stressing out about that as I anticipate going down there um, and, I, and, and there's just so much unknown so my assignment was to be embedded with the National Guard and I knew that uh, I had a press liaison who was a person who who guides the media through, but I also knew that we would be essentially the only media there right along the border. Um, so it's kind of important to get it right, and I'm stressing about that. And this is all the things that I'm thinking about before I even get there. Uh, and then not the least of which is how am I going to keep my like my backpack with me. Is it, is it going to be near me? Am I going to be near a vehicle? Am I going to be walking a lot? How much am I going to be out in the heat? What am I supposed to wear? Uh, I didn't know if they would be because the National Guard's out there in that heat. Bless their hearts in their full uniforms, bulletproof vests, hats, helmets. And and uh, I didn't know if, for safety's sake, if if they'd be dressing me in that. Ultimately, they didn't, but I spent a lot of time worrying about it ahead of time. And then really what I wanted to do was figure out a way to keep my gabapentin nearby. I take it three to four times a day, and that really cuts down on the pins and needles feeling in my body. Um, And if I don't take it, uh, everything that I've just talked about is a lot worse. Let me just put it that way. So so I'm thinking, all right, how am I gonna how am I gonna make sure that I've got a backpack with me that I can get to that I've got my gabapentin. So all these all of that is a stressor uh, going into this. So then we flew from where I live in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, down to uh, down to Eagle Pass, Texas. We we flew into San Antonio, where we had shipped our gear. We have a sister station which is KSAT, K-S-A-T, in San Antonio, which is owned by the same company, Graham Media, that owns my television station, WSLS, in Roanoke. And so we flew down. We had shipped our gear to KSAT. The gear arrived late, uh, later than we anticipated. And so now our deadline is approaching. We've got a two-and-a-half-hour drive. This is on, on a Monday. 
We've got a two and a half hour drive. It's a week ago today as I'm speaking uh, down to Eagle Pass, Texas, where we are scheduled to begin doing live reporting from the border right at the what they call the Trump wall, which is the border wall uh, at the border. And we don't have any gear. We have a camera with us, but we don't have the, the, the thing called live view, which is how we get our live signal back to the television station. So anyway, KSAT digs one up and lets us borrow theirs. We drive down and get there maybe 45 minutes before we're supposed to go live. I still haven't talked to anybody, but I know I know the deal. I know what's going on. And, and at that point, I can talk about what we are about to do and what we can see. And from where we're positioned outside the Trump wall, I can see the river. I can see the what they call the, the concertina wire. They call it sea wire. And it is unbelievably hot. It's 102, 103. We're checking our phones for the National Weather Service. The car thermometer says 107. Um, so, that, But that's probably not accurate. So it was probably, for safety's sake, let's say it's 102. Does it, I mean, at that point, does it really matter? So uh, we get there. And I'm describing what we can see. We see a group of migrants walking along the wire that have somehow gotten through the the wire, the sea wire, uh, which is these swirls and swirls and swirls, like you see on top of prison walls. Uh, and they've they've put 90 miles of this along the river uh, because Texas Governor Greg Abbott has declared essentially war on migrants just coming into. United States along the Texas border unchecked. Um, if they're going to come, they need to be essentially checked. They, they, it needs to be difficult. There needs to be an orderliness to it. They can't just come through, run into the brush, and disappear into the United States. And and some of these migrants are good people who are fleeing bad situations with their families but some of them are not. Some of them are, are participating in human trafficking. Human trafficking, as I would learn, is very real, and it happens every day. Uh, and then some of these guys are identified by Border Patrol as single males who have bad intention. They're bringing drugs across the border. They are they are here to do things that the United States would not want them to do that are going that's going to make life worse in the United States. So they're smuggling drugs uh, or, or doing other things that uh, that essentially we don't want happening in the United States. So uh, I am uh, I'm there and then the next day and we do the live reports that works okay. And then the next day I'm actually embedded. Um, I, I will join this press liaison, and we will be, instead of being outside the Trump wall, there's about two or 300 yards from, from the border wall, as it were, that was erected, and they just refer to it as the Trump wall, that was erected during President Trump's time as president. And now we're inside that wall, so we're between the wall and the actual river, and the actual concertina wire, and now we are patrolling. We're going right along and watching the troops patrol. And I am there because the Virginia National Guard has been mobilized by our governor to assist Texas. And they're there. There's about a hundred of them there for 30 days, and my job is is essentially to cover them. 
and and I do, and we do lots of interviews with them. I interview the commander. Uh, I interview uh, several of the Virginia troops who are down there, but I also interview a lot of other people. And I'm watching, I'm watching the situation at the border because until you understand what's happening with everybody at the border, you can't really understand the context of what the troops are telling me and what they think about it, what they're seeing, what they're doing, what they see their role as being. Um, so we are embedded and we're starting to see lots and lots of migrants. So what happens is the migrants are trying to cross from Mexico into the United States. So they cross the river, which is shallow on both sides. It's deep, but swimmable and in many places wadeable in the middle. And they come across, they get on the United States side of the river, but now they're up against this wire, this sea wire, this, the, the, and the swirls and swirls of it that appears to be impenetrable that the troops have erected uh, at the direction of, of Governor Abbott in Texas. And the troops just stand on one side of the wire. The migrants are on the other side of the wire, they're wading in the river where they can. They find paths right next to the river, but still uh, still on the river side of the wire. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And you talk to the troops, and the troops are not supposed to have an opinion. I think they empathize with these people, but their job is to tell them to go back to Mexico or to tell them that they can't come into the United States. And these people see the wire. They see the troops. They see the Border Patrol in boats going up and down the river, and they're still trying to get through, and some of them actually do. Some of them get through the wire. They, there's, there's troops every two, three, four hundred yards, depending upon the numbers that they have available, and they'll look up, and all of a sudden, there's people standing inside the wire. And, and then the people just say, for the most part, during the day, and some of them are carrying, a lot of them are carrying children, uh, they say, okay, arrest me. I don't care. I made it. I'm on U.S. soil. And so then the, the Border Patrol comes and takes them, and they, and they go for what they call processing. At that point, the troops' job is over. And then it's up to the Border Patrol people to take them to customs and so forth, and they decide what to do with them. And that's not the part of the story that I'm covering. I'm covering what happens at the border. But people come and they bring clothes and they'll, they'll put clothes or blankets over the wire so that the barbs can't cut them. And they'll, they'll knock it down, they'll push it down, or they'll find a way to just get through the coils. They'll, they'll cut their skin. They don't care. But you got to remember, some of these people are fleeing with just the clothes on their backs and their families. They're coming from Honduras, from Venezuela, some of them from Mexico. And the last thing between them and freedom is those coils of wire. They've even gotten across Mexico, and I'm going to tell you what happens to them in Mexico, which is awful. And now all they have to do is get across three or four yards of this wire. Well, they're going to do it, and they, and they don't care. Right? They don't care if they get hurt. They don't care if they get entangled. And it's and they get through. They they find a way to get through, even if they get hurt or or and many times they just find a way to trash the wire by using clothing and so forth to protect them and and they get through. Um, and I'm I'm seeing all of this. I'm seeing a group of migrants that 
The troops said they watched them. One minute they were on the other side of the river. They turned their backs or they looked over for something else. And there they were. They were just standing there on our side of the wire. So you watch movies and you hear this term coyotes. Coyotes are the people who are hired by these migrants to bring them into the United States. But they're bad guys. For the most part, they're bad guys. Uh, A lot of them are working with the cartels or they are working um, for themselves. But what they do is they agree for a fee to get these people to the border. Then, as they do, they rob them of everything they have just as these people reach the river. Um, and then we heard from lots of the migrants that, uh, that not only were they robbed by the coyotes, but they were attacked by the coyotes and what they call the cartels in Mexico. And also, they claimed the Mexican police. And I don't think these are the Mexican police that we saw right there at the border across the river, but as they're coming through Mexico, they told us that they were robbed, that the men and the children were beaten, and that the women were sexually assaulted. And while we were there on evening patrol one night, we saw a group of about three dozen migrants try to get across a bridge and actually rush customs. Now, this isn't like rushing the wire where we are. This is, they got on the bridge where if you were a tourist and you were coming to Mexico from the United States, you'd be in your car, you'd come up to customs, you'd show them your passport, they would look at your passport, they'd maybe look over your car, and then you would be waved into Mexico. And the same thing coming into the United States. These people are on the bridge, and they are rushing customs. They are trying to get through customs without going through that process because they don't have passports. And so then what happens is there are, I kid you not, at least two dozen vehicles on the United States, uh, police vehicles with their lights flashing. And then on the Mexican side, there they are. And there are snipers on the roof of the rib, uh, uh, across the river. And so these people turn around. They've been led there by the coyotes. They walk down to the river and they take off running. And I'm watching this whole thing. They just take off running and they're fleeing the Mexican authorities. They're fleeing the coyotes who want to rob them of whatever they have left. And they just jump in the river and they start wading and swimming across. And I was with Staff Sergeant Aaron Lycourt of the Texas National Guard, and he narrates to me what's happening. I want you to just listen to a part of my interview with Aaron Lycourt. Here it is. We've got a developing situation right here. Sir, what's going on, Lincourt? What, uh, what can you tell us? Currently, we have the, the group that was at the bridge site. Um, they've got pushed down to the under the bridge where the river's at, where essentially the border starts. And instead of doing the, the legal way, they're trying to cross illegally. Um, now they've actually hit our, uh, our land, and they're on the other side of the con access, which is already an illegal trespassing but they haven't crossed the sea wire that's already put down. Okay, so this is the same group of people we saw that tried to rush the bridge. Correct. Um, and then they turned around, they came down along the river, and then they just started running. What was going on there? Uh, so what happened was is that uh, the Mexican Border Patrol, 
their Border Patrol came down and they were trying to catch them too. So they all scattered. Now the group has broken up into several smaller groups and each small group is trying to cross the river through their own way. And some have already hit the side. If you look over the side where we're at now, you see uh, probably the first group to actually cross the border. All right, I'm gonna, gonna pan over. Yep. And there they are, right there. A multitude of women, children, women, men. children. Right. So, and then when there was the issue, they were running from the coyote. Tell me what was going on there. Um, so what usually happens is if they haven't paid the coyote, um, the coyotes will try to go for, for their cell phones or wallets that close off their back for the most part. And by the time they hit our side, they've already been robbed. So depending on if they've already paid coyotes on their side or not, that will usually happen. So that's just a a glimpse of my reporting that that happened at the border. Normally I would be on camera, but my photographer, Jeff Perzan, who is with me from Channel 10, has got the big TV camera, and he's he's taking video of all this happening. So that's not, I mean, if I'm on camera, then he can't get that video. And and the opportunity to get the video comes and goes. These people are jumping into the river. He can't have a camera pointed at me when he needs to have a camera pointed at them. So I just used my cell phone and I just started reporting. And I I actually put together a clip which will be at WSLS.com and it's reporting for Channel 10 on my cell phone, my extended interview with Aaron Lycourt, because what we did is we followed that group that came across, they yelled at us in, in Spanish, they were telling us all the atrocities they suffered, but now the National Guard, regardless of their empathy, is not allowed to let them in. So we followed them as they walked in the river on their side of the wire and then they got tired, so they had to stop. And they got women and children with them, and they had to stop. And we, we stayed with them for a while, but then we had to go on because we were with the National Guard, and they had guardsmen watching these people, but we couldn't stay with them all night. Um, but we did stay with them until very late, until, until well after dark. Um, and I believe that if they kept going, they would eventually get to the, the end of the wire five miles downriver and then probably be arrested and and taken for processing. But the next morning, we went back to the end of the wire. More people were arriving there, and we saw what happened. This was a different group. So we got, they got these people up under into the shade after they made it, and they're, they're waiting to be taken for processing, and a woman is crying, so we interviewed them. They're speaking in Spanish, but now I have an interpreter, and... So what they do is they separate the men if they're over 18 from the women and children because a lot of times men come in looking like they are a part of a family, looking like they are well-intentioned, but sometimes they're not, and and that happens every day. And so and the troops at the border have no way of knowing who's who. So this woman is crying. She's talking about all these same atrocities, being robbed, sexual assaults, the whole nine thing. And then her son, who is 18, is separated from her. And she's crying. She wants her son back. But because he's over 18 and he's a male, they take all the males to the border for processing separately. I would assume that if she is being honest and her son is well-intentioned, that the family would be reunited. But if not... I don't know what happens. I mean, that all happens at processing. And and I, I, I want to try and find out. I'll, I'll never be able to find out what happened to that family. But 
I'm seeing all of this and it's it's heartbreaking. But I and on the other hand, I'm in my mode as journalist. I'm in my mode as reporter. And my job is is not to help these people or to try and help these people, even if there was a way that I could. My job is to tell their story. And so that's that's what I'm doing and that's what I will be doing. That's as to a certain extent that's what I'm doing now. So what does this have to do with sarcoidosis? Maybe nothing, maybe a lot. For me, as I told you, I was wondering what my body could take in terms of the, the stress and that environment from the heat. Um, you know, if you listen regularly, I stay in shape by riding my bike. I, I think I am in, in better shape than most of the population because I work at it so hard. Um, I, that's, that's just what I mean, it may not be. Um, but, you know, and there's a lot of people at the gym who are in better shape than me, but there's a lot of people who aren't even in the gym. So I'm testing all of that fitness. I'm testing my ability. Um, my bike is, as you've heard me say, is my thermometer for my health. And when I'm riding well, I feel like everything is okay. Haven't had a flare since 2018. And as you know, I spent most of 2019 recovering with very strong drugs that sidelined me for most of 2019. So 2020 is my, like my first quote-unquote, good year since my last severe flare. So when I got this assignment, I thought about playing, I literally thought about playing the SART card with my boss. He's like, I'm thinking about sending you to the border with the National Guard. Do you want to go? Will you go? And I could have looked at him and I could have said, you know, with my situation with sarcoidosis, I don't know if I want to put myself there. I don't know if I can handle it. On the other hand, a part of me said I wanted to see what I could do. I knew this was a huge story, a good story, and and I wanted to do it. I mean, I really, I wanted to go. Um, and at this point, looking back, I'm glad I did. I went. I'm home for four days now, three and a half days, if you will, and and things are okay. Um, it appears that I survived it. And so then you get to the inevitable comparison between my life. Dealing with sarcoidosis, feeling like uh, I got screwed by sarcoidosis, feeling like I mourn the life that I once had, and I've heard from all of you that, that we all do the same thing. And then I look at these poor migrants trying to get in the United States with just the shirts on their backs. We saw one family, they wanted to push through the wire and and the woman was crying and she had this documentation that she had cancer and she's pushing her documents through this wire trying not to cut her arm and the soldiers look at it and they they say yeah it looks like looks like you do um you we may let you come through for medical reasons but we're not going to let your family come through they're going to have to they're going to have to go back and so she's crying. She doesn't know what to do. And eventually she decides she wants to stay with her family. And they turn around. They go back into the river. Um, I don't know whether they ever made it into the United States. We're, I mean, we're seeing so many of these people. We can't focus on just one group. And even if we could, I, I don't know what we'd be able to do. They go back into the river. They're gone. It's not like I can go through the wire. I have to stay on the U.S. side. I, I'm embedded. I'm somewhat at the whim of the troops. But so I'm seeing this woman and it's breaking my heart. 
And, and all of these people just have the shirts on their backs. They've endured unbelievable pain and suffering. They're, they've left everything behind, again, beaten, robbed, sexually abused on their way to the United States. And then once they get here, even if they get a work visa or they find some way to stay in the U.S., even if they're shipped by Texas, and we see this reporting happen by other media, uh, they put them on a bus and they'll send them to a city or a state that has democratic leadership because this is a lot of this is political and it has to do with the Republicans, Governor Abbott in Texas, Governor Yunkin here in Virginia. Um, you know, he'll he'll take the, the Democrats are much more sympathetic to the cause of the migrants. They think that they should there should be more of an open border. So they bring these people in and they say, OK, you want them here. They are. Uh, and they'll send them to a state that has democratic leadership and let their social service organizations and so forth, immigrant organizations, deal with these people. That happens many times. But but even if all that happens, even if they get shipped to Boston or New York, then what happens to them? And how does that compare to my struggle with sarcoidosis? Because Because I'm feeling put upon. And I'm looking at these folks and I'm thinking, well, <laughs> okay, I guess I guess my life right now with sarcoidosis isn't so bad. And I, and I think it's important that we look at SARC as the snowflake disease. It affects everyone differently. Every one of us has a different sarcoidosis story. Every one of us has had our lives dispatched to a life that we didn't want by sarcoidosis. And I'm sitting here in my two-story colonial in a cul-de-sac in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia with greenery around me and my dog Dougal lying on the chair and my wife at work at the SPCA helping dogs and me doing this reporting. Um, have three wonderful sons and seven wonderful grandkids, and I see them all all the time. And uh, and I look at these other people, and I think maybe I don't have it so bad, right? Um, and but on the other hand, I think that's not fair to look at the people who are in the worst situation and say, couldn't those of us with sarcoidosis? have a better situation than we have. That doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to fight. That doesn't mean that the pharmaceutical companies don't need to try and find drugs for us. It doesn't mean that clinical trials aren't going on. It doesn't mean that that um, the African-American population in our Ignore No More campaign uh, is not deserving of attention because we're here in the United States we're, we love the United States. We want the system in the United States to work. And that's what these people are coming here for, is to get into our system. They want, they want to be a part of the land of opportunity. And we want to be a part of the land of opportunity. And we're looking for opportunities for each of us to be able to thrive as best we can living with sarcoidosis. So what happens to those people? What, what should happen to those people? 
a lot of the comments on some of my reporting on Instagram. If you want to look at some of my pictures, look at don't look at Sark Fighter. I did post some things there, but just look up John P. Carlin, which is my personal Instagram account. I'm posting some pictures there. Um, what what should happen is not up to me. But I started to tell you a lot of the comments are these poor people. We need to let them in. We need to take care of them. Da 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 da. The United States isn't doing enough. And then I get a lot of comments from, let's call it the red side, the conservative side, that say thank you for covering our troops. They have a difficult mission. Uh, we need to control our border. Um, there's there's two sides to it. There really is. And my job as a reporter is not to take a position. This is, but but this is. I'm just going to report what I saw. But this is politically charged. And it, it's not something for me to answer. Uh, I, all I can tell you is that I saw troops that were working very hard standing there in 100 and plus degree heat. And I saw people on the other side of the wire with unbelievably sad stories to tell. So that's what it's all about. That's, that's what I've been doing. I didn't have an interview for you today. Um, even if I had had an interview, I would have had to cancel it because, as you know, I've been gone. So coming up after the break, on the flip side, a new way that you can help FSR thanks to the efforts of a recent guest here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. Hi. I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter podcast. Well, thanks for, for listening uh, to my riff on life at the border. Um, I want to go back now to, um, to March. I interviewed a man named Tony Haskell, who was a guest here on the Sark Fighter podcast. And he talked about how he'd been diagnosed with cardiac sarcoidosis. He went through some hard times. He couldn't figure out what was going on with his body. Sarcoidosis was very hard to diagnose. He was an active skier in Vermont. Uh, an active cyclist, uh, kind of a, a guy who lives a life like mine, although um, he's, been, uh, he's been very successful in life, I can tell you that. Um, and once he was diagnosed and he started taking the, the various medications for sarcoidosis, and I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 83, um, but he said at the time he was able to live a pretty normal life. I asked him, Did, has sarcoidosis changed the way you live your life? And at that time in March, and now it's the last day of July, so August starts tomorrow, um, he said it really hadn't affected him that much, that thanks to the medication he was getting along. Well, he's been emailing me updates and things are not going so well for Tony. Um, his cardiac sarcoidosis has progressed. He's been back, back to the doctor several times. Uh, the issues with his heart have worsened, 
and doctors have now told him that he needs to take it easy. They have told him he cannot any longer ride his bicycle or do anything difficult outside, and he has really, really had to scale back his life. And he had intended to do a fundraising bike ride that I've talked about, and that's not going to be possible now. So I received an email this morning from Tony Haskell. He says he's determined to do something. I just want to read you a little bit of that email. So Tony has been doing some fundraising for other diseases uh, before he was diagnosed with sarcoidosis. And he said, this year I'm switching gears, so he's not going to raise money for his other causes because of circumstances that transpired last summer as I was preparing for a 100-mile fundraising ride in Vermont. Right after I reached out to you last year, I began to get into training, but unfortunately my training digressed precipitously, and I couldn't pinpoint at the time why. Long story short, he writes, after seeing a host of specialists throughout the summer, which would have been last summer, I was diagnosed with the hard-to-detect autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis can affect several different organs in the body. In my specific case, he writes, the heart. It causes a disruption in the electrical flow of the heart as well as other arrhythmic abnormalities. So he says, at the moment, my doctors won't let me ride outside, so I'll now be pedaling for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, a highly effective organization that helps sarcoidosis patients and their loved ones learn more about living with sarcoidosis and just as importantly generate funds to help develop a cure for it. So his doctors won't let him ride outside and he says, therefore, I'm going to fulfill my mission on an indoor bike at the gym in five to six installments of 15 to 20 miles that in the end will total 100 miles. He says, I'll send out a summary of my rides to all who support my effort after I complete all of the rides. It won't be the usual camaraderie in the beautiful scenery of Connecticut or the Vermont countryside I've enjoyed over the years, but this effort will generate important funds for an organization that is working hard to improve the lives of those afflicted with sarcoidosis and to help develop that cure. If you'd like to support my rides, click on uh, the link below, which I will put that link in the show notes of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast to make a donation via your credit card. Um, and he's also got an ID tax number, which I will put in the um, in the show notes. I want to make sure that I get Tony's permission to do that. Um, and the funds will be donated, directed towards Tony Haskell's FSR KISS fundraising effort. And KISS stands in to kick in to stop sarcoidosis. And as you uh, have heard me say many times, and you hear my public service announcement here on the podcast, um, that's a great way to do it. So I'll put a link to Tony's efforts there in the show notes. And I do hope you'll click on the show notes. And then also there is another bicycling-related fundraiser going on, Cycle for Sark, and that's Royce Robertson. And I, and I believe back in the day, Tony had hoped to join Royce for his fundraising ride, and I, as I had. Royce's ride has been delayed because of the forest, excuse me, the forest fires that are happening in Canada, and it's made the smoke come into the United States, and it's been really tough. So Royce is riding his bike over three days from Buffalo to Syracuse, New York, 
And the new date for his bike ride is coming up now. It's August 7th through 9th. And as far as I know, that's still on. He's also fundraising. And you can go to the FSR website and click on KISS and look for Cycle for Sark and make a donation with your credit card. And I've already made a donation there. And I do hope to hear from Royce and maybe Tony after they have completed their fundraising efforts. So I really appreciate people still, even with sarcoidosis, wanting to do something vigorous and difficult. Uh, back in the day, I used to run marathons for the Leukemia Society, and and doing something difficult really triggers that. You, you reach out to somebody and say, look, I'm, I'm doing all the hard work. All you need to do is write me a check or, or use your credit card. And... And that really helps. And so now that's sarcoidosis. And these guys are doing the fundraising, and I hope you'll support them. The official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. The story behind the lyrics is in episode 12. We release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday. As I'm speaking now, my trusty boxer, Dougal, is curled up on the chair in my office. He's been chasing his toy in the backyard this morning before we sat down. Dougal makes my life so much better. The backstory to the founding for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson, who started the foundation at their kitchen table. Please follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook. Just search for Sark Fighter. Also Instagram. I'm on Peloton as Sark Fighter when I ride my bicycle indoors. I have a cycling blog called Carl and the Cyclist. It has a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. If you uh, want to know more about my reporting on the border, uh, you'll need to go to WSLS.com and then click on Insiders, Insiders, and you'll have to share your, uh, your email address, and then you'll become an insider for free, and you'll have access to a lot of my reporting and also uh, some of my reporting you can find uh, without doing that. But if you want to see the real inside story, I've written several blogs about it, and I took a, a camera with a telephoto lens. I'm an amateur photographer. I took some pictures that I think are worth looking at. I really do. Uh, most of them will be, uh, you'll have to sign up to be insiders to get a look at those. But um, I do do that. And I also have a segment on Channel 10 called John Carlin's Outdoors, if you want to see some of my reporting out in the wilderness in terms of fishing and cycling and hiking uh, here in uh, in and around Virginia. Um, if you're new here and you just want to know what sarcoidosis is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. My story with sarcoidosis is episode one. If you'd like to be on the Sark Fighter podcast, and I really need some people to reach out to me right now, send me an email. It's in the show notes. Uh, very quickly, it's carlinagency at gmail.com. And remember, it helps me reach a lot more people and grow the show if you share it on your social media. And if you like it, just tell one person in the sarcoidosis space. Maybe it's your doctor. Maybe it's uh, somebody else you've met at a support group. Just tell somebody about the Sark Fighter podcast. Subscribe and give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. And until next time, keep fighting. Hey.